0: Today's episode is brought to you by BlockFills, powering digital trading. It is my pleasure to welcome to Forward Guidance, William Isaac, chairman of the Secura Isaac Group. Welcome, Uh, thank you so much for for joining us, Bill. Great
1: to be with you, Jack.
0: So Bill, you were the chairman of the FDIC, I believe from 1981 to 1985. At the uh, young age, you were younger than 40, running the FDIC. So how does one get that job? I mean, I want to know that people want to know how, if you're, you know, in your mid thirties, how do you get to be running uh, incredibly important, you know, backstop for the uh, American banking system?
1: That That's a good question that a lot of people ask. Sometimes I ask myself, <laughs> but uh, I was actually appointed in 1978 to the FDIC board. It was a three member board, bipartisan, and uh, President Carter appointed me. Uh, in 1978, at the age of 34, uh, to the board uh, as a a Republican member. It was two Democrats and a Republican. Uh, And then Ronald Reagan defeated uh, Jimmy Carter in the 1988 election. And uh, Ronald Reagan named me as chairman because I was a Republican and the the then chairman was a Democrat. So we just switched switched seats in offices. (laughs) You know, I I was relatively well known for a young man uh, because I had been writing and and doing a lot of interesting work uh, as a as a banking lawyer, and uh, uh, I. I thought someday I would like to serve in government and so I I was well, I was in charge of I was at First Kentucky the largest bank in Kentucky at the time and uh, I was in general counsel and in charge of investor relations and government relations and I thought I I'll just put my name up uh because there was a vacancy and see what happens because I'd like to see how the process works because when I'm old enough I'd like to do this or something like this and I put my name up, and I, I got it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, caught, I caught the car. <laughs> then I had to figure out what to do with it.
0: <laughs> and when, once you caught that car, what did you do with it? Because you joined in 1981. That was the start when there was a lot of turmoil in the banking system. I mean, how often did did it that you had to shut down a bank and, and take it over?
1: Well, actually, I it, it started much sooner than 81, because I went on the board in 78, and the first day, um, that I that I joined the FDIC. It was a I mean a day I won't forget. Uh, I had had I was in Louisville, Kentucky. I had had a dinner at the bank the night before, a farewell dinner, and uh, the executive secretary of the FDIC flew out to Louisville from Washington, uh, met me in the uh, in the at the Galt House Hotel, which was right across the street from the bank, and. Uh, I, I went in the, to the lobby and greeted, and said hi to him and shook his hand and uh, raised my hand to uh, take the oath of office. He swore me in as a director uh, of the FDIC uh, right there in the lobby. We went outside and got a cab and drove to the airport uh, and, and flew to uh, Puerto Rico, where the second largest bank on the island was failing. Um, the other two directors of the FDIC, one was the controller of the currency who had his own agency to run. The other was the chairman of the FDIC. And he was, I don't know what he was doing at the time, but he couldn't make it to Puerto Rico. So they, uh, asked me to go, which I did. And we flew to Puerto Rico and took over the second largest bank, uh, of in Puerto Rico. And, uh, and, uh. It it failed. We we broke it into two pieces. Uh, half we sold to Banco Popular, which was the largest bank on the island, and the other and the other part of it, the other one third of it, we sold to Banco Santander uh, from Spain. So that was my first day at the FJC. <laughs> I was I was the senior person on site.
0: <laughs> wow. What a, not, what a story not, not,
1: not, not by age, just by rank. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what, what was that like? Like when a, a bank is failing, what are the issues that you were presented with when you, as soon as you landed the plane, people said, this is happening. This is happening. This is happening. This is a problem. Is it just people are pulling their, their money out and there's no money left?
1: <laughs> well, it, there, there wasn't a run on the bank. Uh, this was done quietly and quickly. Uh, and, uh, uh it was a as, as which is how the FDIC behaves normally sometimes sometimes you have a lot of, of uh, turmoil uh, but usually you you prefer to go in and close a bank uh, when uh, usually on a friday and you keep it closed over the weekend and you open it on on a monday for business you know the FDIC is very professional this is it, it handles a lot of bank failures. These days, it didn't used to. Um, but uh, the FJC handles a lot of bank failures. The staff knows what it's doing and you have the staff on hand usually well before the date of the date of failure as they help to get ready for it. And people do that quietly. You don't want to make a lot of noise because you want customers to be calm. Um, and so that, that, I would say that, that that transaction went very well and it was... It, it was handled by a professional staff, very professionally, uh, and you, you needed a senior person there, such as a board member, uh, in order that, that there can be decisions made uh, on the scene. But but uh, the staff knows what they're doing, and they don't need a lot of direction from the uh, from the, the the board member who, uh, who may be on end.
0: And how is it the FDIC knows to shut it down a bank before a bank run? Obviously, when you have a, a bank run, it's very visible and it's an emergency situation. But what were the si- signs of this bank or a, a bank that fails, shut down by the FDIC that's not a bank run? Is it just a, a, a trickle of deposits, a, a bank walk instead of a bank run? Is it credit issues?
1: Well, in that case, and, and in most cases, the FDIC has made it and a state commissioner or the controller of the currency, whether it's a national or state bank. So the, the the primary regulator and the FDIC have made a decision that the bank is no longer viable, and and something has to be done, uh, either to shut it down and pay off depositors, or most likely to merge it into another bank over a weekend uh, and then reopen it, so that there's a minimum amount of fuss and delay. It's not a A wild and crazy event. Normally, Um, it's done. It's done very professionally and quickly and quietly. Uh, And the the customers find out on it. It it, it happens over a weekend. The customers on a Monday morning find out that there's a a new bank in town, and and everything's fine. Now, sometimes it gets it gets a little more raucous. Uh, And uh, uh, you know, for example, when Penn Square failed. That was a notorious bank failure in 1982 when I was chairman of the FDIC, um, and it, it was in Oklahoma City, it, and it was a, a bank that had a lot of notoriety, and, and uh, it was in the news, um, and it, it had a lot of problems and issues that were, that were public. Um, so, and there was a, there was a depositor uh, run, uh, you know, and, and so we had to deal with it quickly. So that, that happens. I, uh, and, and more than, more than occasionally that happens. Um, and you, you have to act very quickly. Uh, you take extraordinary measures. You, you may change the transaction, uh, uh to, you know, do it a certain way versus another way. Um, but, you know, the FDIC's mission is to, is to get in, get it done and, and get it over with quickly and, and, and keep it as, as calm as possible it's that, not always possible. Uh, continental Illinois which failed in 1984, large, one of the largest bank players ever, uh, had a massive run. It was a $40 billion bank. And within about a, a week's time, it lost half of its deposits. So, And, and the way that was handled was the, the bank went to the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago and borrowed $20 billion <laughs> uh, to, to meet those, those withdrawals. Um, and then the FDIC worked as quickly as it could to decide how to, how to handle it. We tried to do a merger with another bank, couldn't get one done that made sense uh, in a reasonable period of time. So we what we did is we basically nationalized it. The FDIC took over ownership of the bank. Uh, acquired 80%. Put, I think we put five billion or something like that in it, and uh, and took ownership over. I think it was about about 80% of the bank, and we left 20% in the hands of the existing shareholders, and then we operated it that way for maybe six months or so uh, until we could get it stabilized and fixed properly, and we did a. Transaction uh, that that uh, uh, was a permanent transaction, and you know had a permanent capital confu- uh, infusion and so forth. Eventually, about two years after that, uh, we we sold that bank to Bank of America. So, different transactions call for different different techniques, and and th- the main thing you want to do though is maintain calm. Um, and I can tell you that. One of the t- one of the roughest, well, that first Pennsylvania Continental was a pretty rough time, but another one was uh, we had the first large savings bank that failed in New York City. I think that was around 1980 or 81, and uh, we were getting ready to do a, a, a takeover that would have been done quietly and quickly, uh, and a, and the story broke in a newspaper that we were getting to do that. And so all you know, depositors in New York City started coming and wanting their money. And so we were not, we were not prepared for that. We were not ready for that. Uh, but we, so we acted in an, an emergency uh, manner. And uh, we, we went in and did the transaction far quicker than, and, and more hurriedly than we intended to. Uh, and it, we got it done. And we got the depositors, their money, uh, the ones that wanted it. And, and we took over the bank, but, uh, that was, that was, it was not a fun time. <laughs> it was a lot of work and, and a lot of, a lot of worry about how whether that was a, because this was an early bank failure. We, we had about, you know, Several thousand bank failures in the 1980s, and this was well, this is one of the first major ones in a major city, and uh, it, we did not get off to a, a good start because of. Uh, leaks that got to the newspapers, and we learned some lessons from that, and and improved our methods. But we 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 acted in a real, in a hurry, and we got it done in a hurry, and uh, everything worked out fine. But it was it was a very difficult transaction, and we don't we don't we don't like those. We like <laughs> we like to have things go much more smoothly.
0: You like it when it's boring? Uh, well, it's
1: never boring because. Yeah. The stakes are pretty high, but but uh, and you got to pay attention and not you know so you don't make mistakes and so forth. But but so it's never boring. But it, I'd like it to be a lot more peaceful (laughs) than 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 like what we faced in Oklahoma City or New York City on those occasions.
0: And is there something about the media, about technology nowadays, where it's a lot easier for people to get worried about the banks and? say, uh, withdraw their money, and then they're posting about it, and then other people withdraw their money, and they're doing it over a mobile deposit. Uh, So, you know, that's why Silicon Valley Bank, uh, March March 10th, had a tremendous outflow of deposits that was incredibly, incredibly fast. Was it similar in the 1980s? Was there there new technology, uh, money market funds or other types of uh, vehicles where it was actually easier for people to withdraw uh, uh, deposits? Not as easy as it is now, but easier than the 1950s and 60s.
1: The, all that, all through that period, uh, the 80s and the 90s, and and uh, even you know into the 2000s, uh, you, you had the same problems. It's a little bit more difficult today because of the speed with which money flows, but it, 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 it flowed pretty quickly back then too. I mean, let's say, Continental Illinois, in 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 the space of a week, they lost 20 billion dollars, half their half their deposits. Uh, and and they were basically withdrawals, mostly from Japan. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't an old fashioned bank run. It was a, it was on the wires. So what what we're experiencing today is not new. It's a, probably a little more common, probably a little bit faster, particularly involving retail depositors. Uh, they used to have to come to the bank and line up, and and actually there's. You, you almost rather would have, have it be done electronically because it's less of a mob scene. And, you know, the TV cameras taking pictures of the lines of people is not helpful. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I, I almost would prefer that it be done quietly uh, over over the wires. Um, but um, it's e- and either way, it's fast. You, mm-hmm. it, this doesn't happen slowly.
0: When people want their money, they, they, they want their money.
1: Yep. Yep. And I think we make a bit much of that now. Uh, I mean, I think what the, what the FDIC has, has always tried to do is do things quickly and quietly so you have as little panic as possible and you try to be very reassuring. You want your money, you're going to get your money. It might be tomorrow instead of today, but you'll get your money, don't worry. And so the FDIC tries to keep things as calm as possible. And sometimes it gets out of hand because... The FDIC can't get its story out because people are acting so quickly by their their mobile phones that they're not listening to FDIC; they're they're listening to all the the rumor mill. Uh, so, so anyway, it's it's a it can it can be complicated and 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 uh, uh, challenging. Uh, Almost any time a bank fails, uh, and sometimes it happens more quickly than others, and sometimes it's there's more notoriety than others. But it's it's not it's not a fun it's not a picnic (laughs) whenever it happens. Uh,
0: Yeah, I I bet. And those depositors withdrawing money in the case of uh, Japanese depositors from Continental Illinois, were they withdrawing it to go to other banks or to money market funds? Because I know the rise of, of money market funds and the ability that they could give. Uh, depositors or, or investors was higher because didn't uh, there used to be a regulation a cap on how high banks or maybe just thrifts you you, you tell me could could charge and then you know uh, Paul Paul Volcker a chair of the Federal Reserve raised interest rates to such a high degree that if you could pay six percent on deposits when interest rates are at six that works but when interest rates are at eighteen percent it does just doesn't work and obviously that's a parallel to today with uh, Jay Powell has raised rates quite quickly as well.
1: That that was a nightmare back then, and I'm sure it's not fun today. Uh, and I mean, we I can tell all sorts of war stories. Please, but, uh, well, Paul Volcker and the Fed raised in, in the interest rates, um, the the prime rate, the prime interest rate that, that banks lend on. He raised it to twenty one and a half percent. I mean, that was stunning, uh, and and that was. Uh, from probably, probably began somewhere around seven or 8% back in 1978 or so. And when Paul Volcker came in in 1979, he started moving the rates up and they, they went up a long way and they went up quickly. Um, and it was a, it was a really horrendously difficult period. Uh, and, and uh, I mean, I don't, I don't have any problems with what the Fed did and what Paul Volcker did. I admire what they did. They did what they had to do, and it was effective. It got it, it. It stopped inflation, which was out of control. We when we had to get inflation under control, they did. And then, uh, when once the rates got to twenty one and a half percent, then we needed to go a different direction and, and try to get the economy. Uh, more stabilized. And, and we did that. So I, I think what happened back then uh, needed to happen. I, I wish we had done it this time a lot sooner. And I wish the, the Fed had not taken the interest rates down to close to zero for, and held them there for about 10 years. Those, those were the mistakes that were made. And, and now the Fed is doing what it has to do to clean up this, this problem that, that we've created for ourselves. Uh, so we're, we're we're doing what we need to do uh, with these rates. I know it's not fun. It wasn't fun to, for homeowners to see their mortgages go from um, seven or eight percent back in 1978 to I don't know what what they got up to. I think the home mortgage rates must have got up to something like 14 or 15 percent. Uh, and think of the small business loans and the and the, uh, uh, all the banks. I mean all the farms that went that went broke. The farmers because uh, they had debt on their land and, and the interest rates went up and they they just couldn't afford it. And so uh, we had it was a really, really difficult period and the Fed did what it had to do, the FDIC did what it had to do, and it all worked. Uh, and and fortunately uh, pretty much the politicians stayed out of it back in that period. I'm not saying we didn't get a lot of complaints, because we do get complaints always. But the politicians pretty much stayed out of it, they, and they let the Fed and the FDIC do what they needed to do, uh, and uh, and, it, and it all worked out in the end. I, I don't think we've handled things very well the last twenty years uh, or so. It, it, there was a lot of damage done in the '80s, and and we worked really hard to to fix it, and then we incredibly decided to go back into the, all these problems and and. Uh, we, we lost control of the deficits. And we went from in the year 2000, the last year of Clinton, Clinton's administration, 5.6 trillion of federal debt to 32 trillion or so today. Plus the Fed had almost no debt back in that period on its balance sheet, about just under a trillion. And today the Fed's debt is something like 11 or 12 trillion in that range. Uh, So uh, we've really we've really made some serious monetary and fiscal mistakes uh, in this country. And we don't seem to be able to recognize them and cure them, particularly the fiscal uh, mistakes we've made. And so we're going to have to go through a problem some more. And that's I mean, I really regret that. I think it's a shame. Uh, I think it's awful. It's it's irresponsible. Uh, But we did it. And now we've got to figure out how to fix it. It can be fixed, but it takes it takes a lot of political courage, and and uh, the public's going to have to be calm and let let the people do what they need to do, uh, and the politicians are going to have to be supportive of the monetary authorities and the, uh, to do what they need to do. I don't. I didn't mean to get into a big lecture there, but the t- the two periods resemble each other a lot, uh, and and the first one didn't have to happen. The first period, the eighties, and clearly this one didn't need to happen because it, I mean <laughs> if we had just learned all those lessons. Why did we have to turn around and make the same mistakes again immediately? Could we at least could have waited twenty or thirty years?
0: <laughs> yeah, and let's take it for granted that uh, relatively high, historically normal rates, five percent, but what over the past decade are high rates are necessary to curb inflation. You, you seem to think that, and let, let's uh, you know mainstream opinion. Let, let's just take that as a given. If that is the case and interest rates have to stay at 5.5%, 6%, maybe even a little bit higher to curb inflation, that's from the Federal Reserve, what does that do from to the banking system where you, you know, now we've had a, a lot of banks made a lot of mortgages at 2.5%, 3%, and now they're going to have to pay 4% or 5% for f- to, to fund loans that are yielding them 3% and they're you know, fixed rate mortgages. You saw that experiment back in the 1980s. It was even more drastic then. Anyway, you know, it, it was your job to clean it up. But 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 what sort of happens? I mean, what's your outlook on are there going to be uh, you know more bank failures? How systemic is this issue of, oh yeah, this bank has many, many billions of dollars of of uh you know securities and mortgages that it, it bought or originated at ultra low yields that are no longer sustainable?
1: Back then it was it was a lot more difficult to deal with because we had a public policy of providing by law. Um, since the, from the Depression forward, we wanted to, to promote home ownership, and so we wanted borrowers to be able to get low, relatively low rate, fixed rate mortgages. We wanted we wanted to promote housing and home ownership in the country, and so we we and we and we also didn't want the banks and the thrifts competing. Um, for deposits and, and loans. They'd, I mean, we, we, we really tried to control competition because we didn't want uh, the, the uh, so much competition that banks would do things that were not healthy economically. I mean, in other words, they would keep, compete so hard on rates that they they would make bad loans and bad decisions. So we really didn't want a lot of competition from the depression forward. And we put the FDIC in place because we wanted uh, depositors to feel safe and not and, and not have that money be uh, uh, fleeing quickly. We wanted that depositors to put their money in and build, feel really comfortable that the FDIC would take care of their money. If the bank made mistakes, the FDIC could fix it. And it was a good world and it, and it worked that way for, you know, 40 years. And then we lost, we we lost our our way, um, and we decided that we were willing to have competition, more competition in banking. We we allowed more banks to be formed. We allowed more branching of, to be done, uh, and and we uh, uh, allowed more competition among banks and thrifts and so forth. and it, And it became a more dangerous world because banks were able to compete with each other and then we allowed money market funds to compete with the banks and and that caused banks to do things that were that were riskier they would make they'd make riskier loans they'd charge less money for them uh, than they otherwise might and so forth and so that that whole system broke down and beginning around 1980 we had to deregulate the banking industry largely deregulate it and we we allowed banks to have to to compete with money market funds and we allowed banks to branch in more places or or go across interstate lines and and uh, and because we had no we had no choice because we 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 reduced all those those restraints on competition and i'm not i don't i know i'm not, not even going to preach about whether we should have done that or not i'm just saying we did do it and so it became a very different world. We had, and we had way too many banks and bank offices because it, that was part of the, the the thing we were doing. We were providing convenient services. We, we and we didn't want banks to, to, to. Uh, we wanted banks to be readily available to make all the loans they could to consumers and homeowners and so and farmers and so forth. And then we found that we we had done too much of that, and that. And we had too many banks, and they couldn't all compete. And so, uh, we really had to change the rules, and we we opened up the, the playing field. And it, and so we went from thirteen thousand banks in nineteen eighty to four thousand banks today. That's that's a stunning drop in the number of banks, but it also we took off the interest rate controls. We'd let banks have much more freedom about pricing and the products they offered. And, and we allowed more people into the banking business to compete, uh, you know, non-banks and, and the like. And so it's a very different world. And regulators have a lot of work to do to keep this stuff under control and they don't always do it well. Uh, it's a, it, it was much easier being a regulator in 1940 than it is in, in 2020, much easier uh back then because there were fewer i mean it, it was there were just it wasn't nearly as competitive and aggressive as it is today and so we've we've had to change the way we do things um i'm i'm not saying this is this is worse or better <laughs> it's just different and and so we we've had, we have to recognize that um and it the, the, the I don't think we'll ever go back to that world I, maybe maybe we will have another Great Depression and we'll have to go back, but I, I doubt it. And uh, so I, I I think that we are in a world that we need to understand better. We need to know how to regulate better. Uh, and we're learning those lessons not fast enough. You, you talked about Silicon Valley Bank and, and, and uh, uh, the other the other recent failures. Uh, if you look at them, you wonder why in the world did they fail? They were doing things, uh, for the most part, that they shouldn't have been doing. Why? And, and I mean, they were they were they were growing very rapidly, and that's always a sign of future problems, in all likelihood. Uh, why? And why did the why did the regulators let them do those things? They tripled in size in like three years, uh, a couple of them, and and they and they and they made. Long-term loans, longer-term loans, on fixed-rate government bonds. Why? Why would they do that? First, Pennsylvania did that back in 1978, and 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 made that same bet. And the FDIC and the Fed had to come in and deal with it. It was the largest bank in Pennsylvania, the oldest national bank in the country. Why? Why do we need? Why did we need to learn that lesson again? What? I mean, we saw what happened back then and you could say it was novel when it happened and it was, but it's not novel today. It's, you wonder why, why did the, why did the regulators let them do that? They saw it. They did it. They weren't doing it quietly. They weren't doing it secretly. It was out in the open for all to see. Why did, why did the regulators delay in in getting on top of it? So we're, I I really think that back in the eighties, one of the, one of the things that I can say for sure, we were dealing with, with a lot of novel situations, Penn Square, Continental, all this stuff. we, we have first Pennsylvania. These were things uh, the first uh, first of their kind. And, and, and we had a lot of lessons to learn and, and we had a lot of cleanup to do and we had a lot of rule changes to make. Why did we, why do we need to go through that again 20 years later? I mean, it, I mean, or 30 years later, whatever it is, and and uh, I, I'm 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 really disappointed that we we didn't learn the lessons of the 1970s and 80s, and we had to go through the whole thing, same thing again. And I know, uh, you know, Paul Volcker and I became friends. We didn't start out as friends. We didn't know each other, but we became very close friends, dear friends. Uh, and I I tremendously admired him. And we talked a lot after he and I both left office. We, I, He lived in New York and I lived in Washington and, and Florida. And I, whenever I went to New York, I'd get together with him. We'd go to dinner or whatever. I'd go to his apartment. We'd talk. And, and I know how disappointed we both were when we saw that all those lessons we learned back in the 1980s and the, 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 the expense of... Cleaning up this mess and, uh, and the effort—it was incredible. The amount of effort it took, and 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 then we watched it, and and they were doing the same things again. They were making the same mistakes again.
0: Which which um, mistakes and when? Early two thousands, twenty tens, and what lessons?
1: From early two thousand to today.
0: Now, and that's the, on the you're talking about the deficit, so it really goes on the sovereign level. Not you're not talking about banking. Things specifically, just, just.
1: The, the, the major problem in the 70s and 80s was a government out of control, fiscal policy, way too much debt, way too much federal debt, way too much spending without enough revenue. Um, and then, you know, the Fed monetized that and, you know, goes into the banking system. And that leads to inflation and failures and all sorts of things. And we, we know what caused all those problems back then. We knew, we knew how that happened and we knew what we had to do to fix them, to clean it up. And it wasn't fun. And I know Paul Volcker and I have talked about it a lot. Why are they doing the same things again? Why are they making these same mistakes again? Um, uh, it, it, just, it seems like a, we, we lost two decades for no good reason. And and beginning uh, in in 2000, roughly 2000 uh, through today, all those mistakes that we, that were made back then by the government, by the federal government. I'm not saying there, isn't, there aren't other problems, and I'm not saying there uh, is, there aren't some state governments that, that did some you know some things that were mistakes. But it was mostly the the, the Congress and the federal government and the Fed made these mistakes uh, back then and they are they repeated them all again in this in this period um, and i just i think that's just i mean it's shameful it it really is we shouldn't be going through this mess again we didn't need to learn this lesson again uh, we were i mean I, I don't want to just keep on repeating the same things but that but, that, but that's where we are we, we there's nothing new about this crisis except this one is even less explainable I mean it, it, you just don't understand why people would do this again. This is this didn't this shouldn't surprise anybody in Congress that if you spend 30 trillion dollars <laughs> that that you don't have that it's going to cause a lot of economic problems and going to hurt a lot of people and businesses.
0: And the way that that impacts the banking sector is how could you outline that it's that inflation goes up and then interest rates go up so banks own you know, long-term fixed-rate loans and and bonds.
1: Well, it it, it affects banks in many ways. Uh, for example, um, when when uh, prices go up and really high, it impacts consumers. They they bought a house and now they can't afford the house, and or uh, a business that they. They've, they've got the capital they thought they needed, but now prices are all going up through the ceiling and they can't afford to run their business the way they need to run it. And they're going to have to raise prices, which means their customers are going to, their customers' businesses are going to start losing money because they can't afford the debt. I mean, that's what, that's what, that's what bankrupted all the farms back in the late 1970s and early 1980s. They, they, they borrowed, they borrowed money to plant crops and buy their land. And then, then the interest rates went way up because inflation went up. Uh, and so the farmers couldn't afford their farms anymore. Uh, that's what happens. Uh, and usually there are people who win in, in times like that, but mostly they aren't ordinary folks who win uh, and they aren't farmers who win usually. And, and, and most businesses don't win. Some do. But it's, it's not it's not fair because the government's changing the game, the, the rules, after people have made all these financial commitments. Uh, the government's changing the price of money.
0: Well, some would say, you know, Paul Volcker changed the price of money. It wasn't Congress. Congress spent a lot of money that, you know, they borrowed it. So the Treasury had to borrow it. But it was the Federal Reserve that raised interest rates, right? When they have to pay more on their farm, you know, don't, don't look at the senator from Dakota. Like, look at, you know, the Fed, right?
1: No, I I, th- I think that Paul Volcker had to. Inflation is what caused the farm prices to rise. Okay, okay. and Fo- and Volcker had to, and the Fed had to kill inflation. And that meant rates have to go up, and that means anybody who's borrowed, not everybody, but most people who borrowed are going to get hurt, because that's that's the consequence of rising interest rates, and I and rising interest interest rates are the consequence. Of high inflation because you can't you can't tolerate high inflation indefinitely because it, it destroys everything I mean look at look at Brazil and Mexico and all the countries and what they went through um, and we, we don't want that in the United States um, and and there's no need for it I mean that not, not only is there no need for it it is, it is it is insane for a country like the United States to be uh, doing the kinds of policies that it has been doing in terms of inflation and interest, and inter, interest rates and uh, big big deficits that cause those things. Uh, it's, it's insane. It really is. And nobody seems to care <laughs> in, you know, in, in, in Washington. I, I know that there are people who care a lot, but right now they're not in control.
0: I'm going to tell you about Blockville, a so crypto trading solutions and financial technology firm. Since its launch in 2018, Blockfills has been ushering institutional investors into the digital assets marketplace with their array of services. Providing liquidity as a service, prime lending, their prolific over-the-counter desk, as well as their industry-leading SaaS suite, which includes the robust and sophisticated front-end trading platform Phoenix, as well as the all-encompassing trading order management and risk management platform Vision Crypto Cloud. The Blockfield's SaaS suite simplifies all aspects of the trade cycle by combining robust technology with turnkey solutions to power digital trading. So visit slash open to begin your onboarding process today. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. And just just on a political point, I know you were you know, appointed by a re- Republican. Did it used a, to be the case a, a, that Republicans a Democrat, a Democrat first? Democrat first. Thank you. Uh did it used to be the case there is the stereotype that Republicans care more about fighting deficits and taming deficits than Democrats. But, you know, when you look at the record, is that true because I think, you know, Republicans they like to cut taxes and not pay for the programs and Democrats like to expand the programs. It's just they they both increase deficits, right? It's a bipartisan uh Effort to to increase the. US debt. I don't. I don't
1: think you could make a good case for the Republicans uh, are uh, have been um, much uh, uh, less uh, less likely to spend money, and uh, every everybody's spending money. Uh, I, I would say that if I look when inflation takes off, it it has tended to take off. When Democrats are in power, and I don't mean to over—I'm I'm not a highly partisan person. I, I actually think uh, I'm not—I'm—I'm—I'm going to say I'm not partisan. I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm trying to be as as sane and middle of the road as as you can be. Uh, but it's true that we had inflation takeoff in the, in the '60s when we had the Vietnam War going on, plus the Great Society spending programs, uh, and we didn't raise taxes to Pay for those things, and uh, those were during mostly Democratic administrations, uh, and and those. But but I'll also give Carter credit for deciding to kill inflation uh, when a couple of Republicans between the the sixties and into the seventies, a couple of Republicans were in were in office, and the, and and but they never controlled the Congress, and and uh, so the Republicans were trying to trying to deal with inflation, but not very successfully. And and then it was Jimmy Carter who came in and appointed Paul Volcker and said, fix this. And so I give Jimmy Carter a lot of credit for that. Uh, and then we go into the, the the Reagan era and followed by the Clinton era. Uh, and, and I'll give, I, I know what, uh, what Reagan did, a Republican did to try to bring inflation under control and to build a sound economy. He, he did. You can't you can't deny that, but but then Bill Clinton came in, and he and with with help from Newt Gingrich, really controlled federal spending and brought inflation. Continued to bring inflation down, and uh, and kept it, and kept the federal deficit under control. Good control. At, at one time we were talking about in the early nineteen nineties, were like if if in the in the late nineteen nineties we were we were saying that we were going to be able to wipe out. The federal deficit entirely, because Clinton and, and Gingrich were running the country so well in terms of spending money and keeping the government spending under control. And then we go we go into the two thousands and beyond, you know, for the next twenty some years. I don't recognize the fiscal policies, and I don't recognize the monetary policies. They were they were so wrong. They were so out of control. And. We, we, sh- we shouldn't have done that, but it was done by Democrats and Republicans because you had George W. Bush in 2000, which is when this started. and the, you know we had the World Trade Center and the war in Iraq and that sort of stuff. and one thing led to another. and Obama uh, and uh, Obama comes in for and he has a lot of deficit spending on domestic programs. And then Trump comes in. He had a lot of a lot of spending. Um, and, and, uh, and then you had to, you know, the, the, you know, the problems with, uh, COVID and all that. And, and then Biden comes in and he, he seems to not recognize there are any limits. It's it's unbelievable how much money he's still giving away 30 billion or trillion dollars to the student loan program. And I mean, just things that are so, they don't make any sense. They really don't. And, and, uh. And it's not just him because it's, it's, there's a lot of people in the Congress that are doing that. I'm not, and I'm not trying to be partisan. I really am not as as I, and I've named a bunch of names and you see they're from both parties. (laughs) And, and uh, so I, I think that um, uh, but we know what, we know what went wrong on in the eighties, seventies and eighties. We know what went wrong this time and, and there's no excuse for not fixing it and stop this nonsense. And it's so harmful to the people, to ordinary people.
0: So the mechanisms through which raising interest rates, higher interest rates curb inflation, the, the mainstream ones I'll just you know, list for our audience here are it costs more to borrow. So people borrow less or so they spend less. Uh, it, it costs more to borrow, so they can do less speculative activity in financial assets. The discount rate is is lower, all sorts of stuff. But it also seems like you're alluding to the fact that when interest rates are higher, it costs more for the government to borrow money. So the it disincentivizes, disinclines the government to run larger and larger fiscal deficits. Is that a theory that you believe in? And is that a theory that uh, Paul Volcker believed in?
1: I'm not going to talk about Paul because he can't speak for himself right now, but he has lots of books he's written and people can can study him. Um, I got one. Yeah. yeah, He's one of the the greatest Americans we've ever known. And, uh, uh, And I have nothing but admiration for him. And I, he's just a brilliant guy and so bold and, uh, had 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 the public interest always in mind, but anyway, it, it does cost money to borrow uh, more money to borrow when rates go up, and and that does make it more expensive for you to buy your house or run your business or buy your car, and and therefore it tends to cause a reduction in demand, and and inflation is happen when inflation happens there's a, there's a lot more money around and price and prices that haven't yet risen. So there's a lot more money around. So there's a lot more demand for goods. And so goods naturally start to cost more. And we see that, we see that in so many ways, go to the grocery store, it's going to cost you more to buy eggs and, and, and beef and so forth, everything. And, and it happens when you go to the gas pump, Uh, gasoline's costing you a lot more. And, you know, by the way, I, I I went to the FDIC in the in the late '70s, and I my memory is that back in that era we had gasoline that was less than a dollar a gallon. Not not maybe not when I went to the FDIC, but earlier than that in that period. I mean that's that's that, it shows you where how much things how much cost has been added, and how much uh, f- less money we have in relation to the cost of goods. Uh, I mean, when 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 rates when the gasoline goes from a dollar a gallon to five dollars a gallon, <laughs> that tells you you're going to get you're going to you know you're going to take a lot more of your paycheck to go to work.
0: If if your wages go up five times as well, then you're you're even. It's a it's a push. But they
1: can't. I mean, eventually everything becomes too expensive for the ordinary folks. Now, if, if, there, there are some people who do all right in, in, in an inflationary environment, and they tend to be people who have good jobs or, good, or good, good assets, they own a lot of assets. And so their assets are going up in value just fine. The price of a home just keeps on going up. The, if you already own the home and you don't have debt, that's a, that's a great deal. So it's, it's, it's rich folks. Who don't have a lot of debts, that can get through inflationary periods just fine, but that's not very many of us. That's a very small proportion of our people, and it's not, it's not the the eighty percent of the people who haven't who have a fairly normal life, who have who have debts.
0: But, but Bill, sorry, just returning to the point. So I've heard, I think you said earlier in the interview, and I know you've said in previous interviews that. Uh, you know, th- thank, thank uh, Volcker for raising rates because he really got the deficit under control. The implication being with higher interest rates, the government's going to spend less money. So is, is that a channel that um, you believe in? And I'll, I'll just, the reason I'm bringing it up, I was attempting to be sly about it, but now I'll sort of come out and just say, is <laughs> because, you know, uh, now the Federal Reserve believes in central bank independence. You know, when a reporter asks Jay Powell, central bank independence, when a reporter asks Jay Powell, uh, should, is the government spending too much money? He says, that's not my job. Did that always be the case?
1: I I don't agree with that. I think it is his job. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he he, he, he doesn't, he doesn't enact the legislation. Okay. Yeah. And, and he's probably saying that's what, that's what Congress is supposed to be doing and the president is setting the budget. But I can tell you that most fed chairmen that I've known, and I've known a few, always have I've almost always spoken out against excessive spending and have urged the Congress to get budgets under control uh, and I know for sure Volcker did almost as soon as he got up in the morning and read his newspaper <laughs> I mean he was quite clear about what he thought about government spending and and it, but technically it's not it's not his job. The the House enacts you know, budgets, and the Senate approves them, uh, and the President signs them. So th- that's that's where all that happens. And then, but the Fed, when the, when the Congress spends a ton of money, the, it, it, there's a lot of pressure on the Fed to provide the the money to support that. I mean, if Congress is spending all that money. Um, the Fed tends to provide the more more currency and, and more bonds and so forth. So, um, you know, they, they but but they complain about it usually.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I, I know Volker and 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 I've seen a number of Fed chairmen and uh, Greenspan. You know, they normally complain. Maybe maybe Jay Powell's too polite. <laughs> he is a nice person and and uh, and he, he he's not you know maybe he's not comfortable criticizing the congress but i mo- i know other fed chairmen that i've known pretty well who took you know were not afraid at all to criticize the congress for for uh, uncontrolled fiscal policies
0: what do you think bill about the theory that the problem itself is inflation for all those reasons that you said so if the government is running a large budget deficit and inflation is out of control by all means, the government should for sure reduce and maybe even run, run a surplus. But if inflation is muted, like, say, at 1% or even in deflation, then a budget deficit by itself is not, you know, an evil, bad thing. You know, one thinks of Japan, for for example, like the inflation there. Well, now it's at 3%, 4%, 4% 3%. But, uh, you know, it was uh, Japan struggled with with deflation. So I guess the maybe the example I'll give is that the U.S. was running a very large budget deficit in 2009, 10, 11 uh, on a historical basis, but inflation was well below two percent, and that's you know. So, so what, what do you think about that theory that inflation is the real villain, not debt?
1: <laughs> Which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> I I think these things these, these things are all tied up with one another, and uh, and Japan does not have a, a great track record. Uh, you know, it, Japan's economy was really really strong in the eighties uh and and then they went through 20 years of just lackluster performance at best and falling population i mean japan has not uh, got a a great record here economic record over the last 30 years
0: right but not inflation it was it was very low growth and low inflation well, they, they had a lot of
1: problems and a yeah, lot yeah. of issues. Um, and and they it was not fun for them to go through what they've been going through. And and I admire the fact that they've they've really tried to keep you know keep going. And and uh, I, Japan has a lot of discipline, a lot more than we have had. Um, and so I, I don't want to be critical of them, but I don't think their problems are the same problems we had. Um, and and also we are a we are a, a country that uh, provides leadership to the whole world, and we're supposed to be being responsible fiscally and, and 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 monetarily because we are the leader of that in the world. We we and but although we're losing that position, if you, if you look at what's going on, I mean, we have been the the central bank of the world, and. And, and people and the, and, and the currency that the world uses, the dollar. But we're losing that position because we're not doing a very good job of it. And uh, I'm sure China would like to have that role. I'm not sure if they will. I'm not sure if they will have the discipline they need uh, to uh, take that role on. But no country has kept it forever. Uh, eventually, we, you know, it's too much for them. They can't, they can't keep maintain the discipline. Uh, and I'm hoping that that we can prove that wrong. I'm hoping that we can prove that we can be the central bank for the world, forever. Uh, I, you know, the odds are against it, um, but I think there's no reason why we couldn't if we can maintain our discipline. And that's that's the tough part, because it means that we can't just do anything we want to do. If, if we want to give, uh, we can't just tell all the students that we'll give you free college education. You, you, we'll pay off all your debts in college, which allows the colleges to pay more, <laughs> to spend more money, <laughs> and the government pays it back because it's just, the students can't afford it. And you know, we, we've got to stop stuff like that. And and uh, we we need to. We know how to behave. We really do. There, this is this is not difficult stuff. Uh, the, the the federal budget is. Uh, I mean, most of most of the, most of us as, as as families have to deal with budget issues. We can't just spend anything we want because it seems like a good idea.
0: Right, but, but go, families can't print money. Governments can't. I know,
1: I, can. I know, but and 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 but which is why the families can't spend forever, and and that's why businesses can't spend forever because they can't print money.
0: Can't governments print forever? The limiting factor is demand for currency based on inflation and depreciates against other fiat currencies. We we see
1: what happens when the governments start spending money that it doesn't have in in large volumes. That's what caused the 1980s problems. That's what happened. That's what caused the the, the depression uh, way back in the thirties. That's what happens, that's what's happening now. Uh, Governments, and and we see it in, in other countries. Who, who once had a lot of power. I mean, Britain used to have the central bank for the world. It's not. It doesn't anymore. It can't. It couldn't carry off. You know, couldn't carry the burden and be disciplined long enough. And everybody that's tried it has not done it right. And I I I believe the the FDI the the, the USA could do it. I believe the United States does have. The ability to do it, if we can, if we can get some discipline and maintain it, and that's that's the hard part. I, this is not to me. This is not this is not difficult stuff. It's not rocket science. We we know how much money a government can spend in relationship to the wealth of the country.
0: So, is a surplus, in your view, frequently or always better than a deficit for a government? No. Okay.
1: We're time to, uh, World War World War Two. Yeah. How are we not going to have a, 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 a budget deficit there of consequence? I mean, significant consequence. But look what happened in World War II. We won it. We spent a ton of money, lost a lot of lives. But we won the war, and then we, and then we started after the war to demonstrate our leadership to the world, and we, we, we maintained responsible fiscal and monetary policies. And it it didn't get out of control until I I would say started to get out of control in the sixties. So we had 20 years uh, where the government really behaved properly. The fed and the Congress maintained discipline. They had deficits, but they weren't out of control. They weren't, they weren't too large for, in terms of our ability to repay. And, uh, and we did some great programs, the Interstate Highway Bill, wow, the TVA and all that. So we, you know, we did a lot of we did a lot of investing, but we but we didn't do crazy things.
0: So Bill, uh, just for our audience, you know, two reasons why banks on the asset fail asset side fail. One is duration. Seconds credits credit credit you're not paid back. Duration is you are paid back or you can be paid back, but it's just interest rates have gone up, so you the money that you're going to get is not worth as much. I think. Uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. All the banks that have failed this year have been because of duration. They've owned long-term assets that were a certain value, and they're a lot less now that interest rates have risen and risen, and they have to pay more for deposits. How often during your tenure as uh, running the FDIC uh, was duration lurking at the, the scene of the crime versus credit?
1: Well, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a good question, and they are and they are separate issues, uh, although sometimes related because you've got duration issues, eventually become credit issues. Uh, you know, we could, the, reason why, the reason why you have a problem uh, with duration is you're losing money for so long, you, it's, it's just eating up what, what your capital. But anyway, but almost all banks, when they get into deep trouble, are either suffering from duration problems or uh, credit quality problems. It, and and sometimes they're intertwined too, but I I don't know how to say what what is what, but I would tell you that when we dealt with the inflation period uh, problems in in the nineteen seventies and eighties, they almost all of the well let's just say the thrifts, the, the savings and loans were required by law. To, to make mortgage loans that's about, about all they could do and they were strongly encouraged to do them uh, as long-term fixed rate mortgages um, so that's that's setting them up if, if the climate stays what the way it should be where we're not overspending and causing inflation and all this sort of stuff and interest rates would go up uh, that 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 works and it did work for 30 40 years but but eventually well and and I'll take the savings bank industry, which the FDIC did ensure. They were all about housing, all about long-term fixed rates, uh, mortgages, and they were doing good things for the public. And and Cong- they were doing what Congress and the regulators expected them to do. But then the other you know, the, the government didn't keep keep its part of the bargain to keep rates decent and reasonable ranges. and and it started to spend money on wars, Vietnam and so forth, and great society programs and all sorts of stuff, college programs and and they'd started spending a lot more money than they had. So prices start to go up. and then interest rates start to go up. And those savings and banks and savings and loans, which were doing their job that they were asked to do, suffered because interest rates went up and they, and, and they had all these long-term loans funded with low-cost deposits and depositors said, we don't like the deposit rates anymore. We wanna to go to the money market funds and get twice as much interest. And so that's what they did. And it, and it drove the, the, the savings and loans and the savings banks out of business. They couldn't afford to carry those long-term loans.
0: Do you think that's going to be a similar thing for banks these days? And if interest rates go up drastically, in this case from zero percent to five point five percent, how can banks manage when they you know, made all these mortgages at uh, three or four percent
1: back in the, in the bad old days? They couldn't because that they were they were not used to that new climate where interest rates are going to be that high and and variable, but. Today you know, a bank is supposed to understand and manage its its interest rates uh, and, and, and not you know hedge things, not just bet I mean not just place bets on the current market. They're supposed to hedge their bets and and make you can hedge things and now that doesn't mean that somebody is gonna lose somewhere along that line <laughs> because when when bank makes when when banks and others hedge, they're betting and somebody's got to take the other side of that bet. So the losses may show up somewhere.
0: But Bill isn't uh if you go through the you know annual reports and investor presentations of almost every bank, they all say that they the more interest rates go up the more they make money because their deposits costs will go up by 20% their deposit beta. And then they're making all these new loans at, you know, all these higher rates. They don't, you know, I guess it's, it's uh, much more buried in the footnotes, the, the value, uh, the impairment of the equity of, of the loans that they've already made. Is that, was that also a problem in the 1980s where, you know, bank, bank CEOs would say, Hey Bill, no issue. We're going to make more money the more rates go up or, uh,
1: first of all, we have to segregate the thrifts from the banks. The thrifts would never claim that because back in that day, because that, that was clear that when rates went up, they were not going to make money on that bet because they were, they were paying deposit costs that if they go up, they're getting fixed rate returns on the, on the assets that they own. The bank's in trouble, the thrifts in trouble. Because their cost of funding goes up, and their cost of on on the on the interest rate they receive is not going to go up because they're doing fixed rate loans back then,
0: except on the new loans they make. But it was in a really inverted yield curve, and yeah, yeah, it, it,
1: it, it, they couldn't they couldn't possibly make loans fast enough <laughs> and that rates high enough to make up for the fact that their their deposit costs were going through the roof. So anyway, I I think that all I'm saying is that separate thrifts from banks because they have different business models or did. But commercial banks did largely make floating loans. I mean, whether it was a loan to a consumer or on a credit card or whether it was a, um, a loan to a business, they, they, they have the ability to increase rates when, rates, when rates when their deposit costs go up. But that, uh, that has a limit. And at some point, that that interest rate cost becomes a big liability because it, let's take the farmer, the bank, had, the banks that made farm loans, they had they had floating rate loans, but a farmer can't raise his food prices fast enough to keep up with this cost of the the, the interest rates that are going up so fast, and and so. You know, it, all I'm saying is, yes, banks can hedge interest rates, and they and they try to, and they, they try to keep their deposit costs as low and as variable as they can. They don't. They try not to raise costs on deposits very fast, and when, and, and they want to do it as little as possible and still retain the, the deposits. But um, they, they and they and they do try to raise their interest rates as fast as they can. But you have the limit of how much you can charge that farmer before the farmer can't afford it, period. Because their, their rates, their, their farm prices are not going to go up that fast. Um, and, and if they do go up that fast, a bunch of other borrowers from banks are going to really be hurt because they can't afford to eat. <laughs> and so you know, I, I, there's, there's, there's nothing free in this. It's it's all got to it's it's all got to follow the laws of economics and and uh, so if you get if you if you get rates moving too much too fast, people are going to get hurt, and and that's why, I mean, I, I I I really am opposed to rapid growth in general because most people can't cope with it. Most businesses can't cope with it. You'd think rapid growth is great. It is, within reason. Everything in moderation.
0: And I think a lot, I'm definitely Silicon Valley Bank. It was called a bank, but it could have been called Silicon Valley Thrift in terms of the duration exposure, because they made a lot of mortgages. um, And they also bought so many mortgage-backed securities, agency mortgage guaranteed by Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae that had a very similar duration component to a whole loan mortgage. It was just se- securitized. So, it, you know, some things really, I guess, never change.
1: And what I just said, everything in moderation. And I mean, I think that's what banking really is about. And I think it's prob- probably what government should be about. Don't do anything that's that's just uh, out of line It's that that is not Mo- you show, use moderation in whatever you're doing, whether it's the government or running a bank, be moderate. Um, and and that, that will serve you well. And when you start, and can somebody create, uh, oh, let's say uh, a car, <laughs> Tesla, and, and make a bazillion dollars? Sure. But that's most of us can't do that. Most of us will never do that. And, and there are, there are some people in some businesses that are new. They've there's a the new thing and uh, it's exciting. They grow. And, I, and I, I, you know, Ford motor company way back when was one of those companies, but most, most companies aren't like that. And most, most households aren't like that. We, we get up in the morning, put our pants on and go to work and, and we earn money if we work hard and we, and we watch what we spend. I mean, and, and, I don't I don't I think that the United States has been blessed because not very many countries have ever had the wealth d- growth that we've had in this country. We've been blessed, but we sure had our ups and downs, and we've it, it, we, we make a lot of mistakes on the way. And when, once we, <laughs> it's funny, when I was at my my first job in the banking world as opposed to a lawyer. I was at, with a bank called First Kentucky. It was the largest bank in Kentucky. And I learned an important lesson then. Uh, the chairman of the bank had been running it for some time. And the bank had had something like 40 consecutive years of increased operating earnings. Pretty good. Yeah. And I, I, used, and I used to talk with them and I say, well, how, how did you do that? I mean, nobody does that. He said, we're not smarter than anybody else. We're not luckier than anybody else. We, we just are more prudent than most. We don't believe that, that we know any more than anybody else knows. We don't think we're smarter. We don't think we make better decisions. But we do everything in moderation. We don't grow anything too fast. Because when you when you got growth rates that are beyond the norms, you're probably taking more risk.
0: But Bill, I want I want to ask you about that. So I mean, you you uh, quoted the Financial Times. You said we're kidding ourselves if we think there are only four problem banks in the country. <laughs> what were the uh, that you know, that was a few months ago after shortly after Silicon Valley uh, Bank failed, I, I believe. What were the was the prudence of the U.S. banking system? And I might add, is it systemic? Whereas if you know, uh, the Federal Reserve buys a ton of treasuries, does a ton of quantitative easing, and bank reserves explode higher, and then banks buy that collateral back from their customers, deposits mechanically are going to go up in the system. So, you know, M2, uh, money supply, is going to explode higher. And one bank can be, quote, prudent and reject deposits, but the entire system has to expand deposits. And, uh, you know, and then when they have those deposits, they have to invest in, you know, mortgage-backed securities to to have a, a good, uh, age, um, you know, net interest margin. So, yeah, what is the prudence of the entire U.S. banking system, and what motivated you to make that quote that you know you, we were kidding ourselves to think there are only four problem banks?
1: Well, I, I what I was thinking about at the time is the fact that uh, we've gone through an enormous transition in, in this country that that's still playing out. Um, w- banks are really heavy in commercial real estate loans. And, and just look at the cities. Uh, I, I've never seen so many tall buildings, new shiny buildings being built anywhere. You know, they're all over the world. Um, and, and you wonder, and I, I, noticed it in China in particular, uh, cause I was over there in the, in the eighties when they were becoming part of the world and it was like, incredible. They, they, the one, I can't remember one of their largest cities. They, they sort of built it and, <laughs> like 10 years and, and it was this great big city and it, and it was all vacant. <laughs> you know, they were waiting for people to move in. Uh, and so, uh, and it's not that bad everywhere, but of course that was a newly developing country. So they, you know, they did do things faster than, than, than most. But my, my point is that in the, in the United States, we have spent a lot of money on building up cities in the last 20, 30 years. And they're nice, pretty, shiny cities. And and they had lots of people and they were bustling and it was fun. But now, a lot of people don't want to live there. They want to work from home. Uh, And COVID sort of pushed that into the forefront, but it was probably going to happen whether or not we had COVID because all of the improvements in technology made it possible to work from home. Take me, I'm sitting here in Sarasota, Florida. Hey, I'm in New York talking business to you, and I could be talking to a banker right now doing some deal, Uh, because I we can because we can, and if I can do this over the over the internet and and uh, have this conversation, it's a lot better than having to drive to work an hour each way every day, uh, or to live in the middle of a crowded city. Instead, I look at the ocean here. So, what I'm saying is that we have a lot of alternatives to living in all these wonderful towers we built. And a lot of people are making that choice. And then a lot of people are leaving places that are too crowded to go to places that have oceans and things like that. There's a lot of shifting of people. That means we have a bunch of buildings, just as the Chinese do, a bunch of buildings that are not fully utilized and are therefore probably losing money. Certainly, they're make, making less money than they were intended to. And so, we probably are going to have to figure out a way to deal. Not not probably. We're going to have to figure out a way to deal with that. Uh, maybe it's just having more population growth until they get and, and stop building so fast, so that uh, we get those buildings uh, uh, more fully occupied, uh, and maybe the prices go up because. There is more demand in relationship to supply, uh, but we're, we're probably going to have a period where that real estate's not going to make the kind of money it was thought to make, intended to make, and I and that means we're probably going to have some losses.
0: For uh, equity holders, you know, real estate developers, maybe, but what about the bank? Did you, did you think that they could extend to the banks? And there could, you know,
1: the, the banks didn't used to make a lot of, of real estate loans, uh, 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 commercial loans because that was usually the province of the insurance companies. And that was true in the, in the eighties. I know that insurance companies had a lot of the real estate and and they could do that because they had different funding. Insurance companies were collecting premiums on policies that stayed in place until you died 80 years later. And so that they, they they had more stable money. They didn't have, you know, depositors coming in and drop their paycheck. (laughs) <laughs> uh, in the bank, yeah. uh, which they would start to spend. So I think that that uh, insurance companies generally financed, and other long-term lenders generally financed the commercial real estate, and the banks didn't do much of that. I think the banks are more involved in that now. They definitely and, are. Yeah. And, and that <laughs> and that that's that's harder for them to do because they don't have. The stable, long-term source of money that insurance companies had, and and long-term investment funds and the like. So we do have some duration issues, I think. Uh, you know, and and uh, I think some banks are gonna are gonna have to deal with that. And 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 three or four of them just did.
0: Yeah. Well, they they didn't deal with them, and then they got taken out.
1: Well, that, I meant I yeah, mean. Yeah. <laughs> they either deal with them, or the government will deal with it for them. That happens, uh, and and uh, we, the question is how much of it is going to, how much of it is going to happen, and how how quickly, how severely. Uh, I I'm not I'm not uh, overly concerned. Uh, I'd I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't have any concerns. Uh, I mean, after what we just saw with Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic and the one in New York, Signature, I think its name was, uh, and of course that was not so much real estate as uh, crypto and all sorts of things. But I, you know, I think that that uh, I'm not going to say that there isn't there, there isn't another one or two or here and there. I don't think we're going to have a, a crisis we can't handle. I, I really don't. Uh, but. If, if Congress doesn't wake up and deal with the real culprit here that, that set all this off, too much money, too much money being pushed around too fast um, at too low rates. I, who, who came up with the idea that we should have 0% interest rates in this country or any country? I, I, I really don't know who came up with that idea uh, because... Back in back in the 80s, when things are or let's say the 70s and 60s, when things were more normal, uh, it, rates were were going up. In, in the 50s, rates were way down. The 60s and 70s they go up, but in the 50s they were never zero or close to zero. There might the mortgage might have been five percent, and then in the 60s it might have been six or seven percent. In the 70s it was eight percent maybe. In the '80s, they went through the roof because we were trying to stop the inflation and stop the, this massive growth in money. So who, does, who decided in the year 2010 or thereabouts that it would be a good idea for the world to go from uh, whatever it was—let's say seven or eight percent interest at that point in the, in the, in the 2000s—say it was let's say seven percent interest rate was sort of the norm. Who came up with this brilliant idea that money should be free?
0: The Fed, because huge huge recession. Huh? There was a huge financial collapse, 2008, Lehman.
1: Lehman wasn't a huge financial collapse. We turned it into a huge collapse, but it didn't need to be.
0: How did we turn it into a huge financial collapse?
1: Well, we adopted TARP and sent $750 billion into the economy.
0: And that made things worse, you think? Oh yeah, sure. So how would banks have, the the wholesale uh, funding markets of banks, how would that have worked out where no one is lending to anyone and the collateral that's been pledged uh, it's either worth way less than it is, or even if it's good collateral, you know, there's a total collapse of confidence in it. and there, there's just tons of bad loans on the banking you know, on the, on the, on the balance sheets.
1: There were not tons of bad loans in the banking industry in 2008. There were, there were a number of bad loans in the financial system as a whole. The banking system was actually healthier than most of the rest of the, of the financial system.
0: So you're talking banking, uh, that take deposits. I'm including investment banks like Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Goldman Sachs, which did not fund themselves with deposits, FDIC's realm, but funded themselves in the wholesale uh, repo markets.
1: I, I understand the, the way the system works. No, and no, I'm I'm, I'm,
0: for the audience, <laughs> for the audience. Yeah,
1: I, 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 but I, well, okay, I, I, but I'm saying that 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 the failure of Lehman, the failure of Merrill Lynch. What happened to Merrill Lynch? Merrill Lynch failed. Largest investment banking firm in the world. It failed. Bank of America bought it. Mm -hmm. End of story. It's again, it's been a huge success. So, I mean, Lehman, uh, I can't remember, but I think it was JP Morgan bought it, right?
0: Uh, Lehman went bankrupt. And then I think
1: some of the assets were
0: sold to Barclays. Somebody bought it, I don't remember.
1: But, but Bill, oh, you know us- I
0: mean, I, I, the whole Bank of America deal. I mean, the, the Fed was working was working the, the phone lines, right? I mean, it was it was not well, just the private f- industry.
1: The, the, the Fed said to B of A. Well, B of A entered into a deal to buy Merrill, a part of Merrill. and then they did their, all, all this due diligence, and they said, "No, that's not for us because we we don't want to take on that problem." And the feds, the the feds. I'm going to use that word plural rather than the Fed. Uh, the the feds said uh, -uh. we need, we need you to buy that. So buy it. And if you don't, you, we're not going to be happy with you and you don't want that. So they bought it. B of A is one of the strongest financial institutions in the world now after having bought, uh, that institution. When they bought Merrill, I mean, Merrill was a, was a great firm. It got into trouble. It needed help. It needed to have a stronger partner. They got one in B of A, and they're, as far as I know, uh, they're pretty happy with themselves right now. Did they have to, to do some work? Sure. But it all worked out. Why we decided we were going to dump $750 billion of taxpayer money into the financial system, I don't know. TARP was a terrible program.
0: I understand the point about moral hazard, but I don't understand how that can't be stimulative to buy a bunch of toxic loans from bad banks.
1: First of all, if you buy toxic loans from bad banks, $750 billion of them, who's going to manage them? Treasury? Sure. Treasury? Sure. you want to turn $750 billion of bad loans to the civil servants of Treasury. I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to do that. And and also by the way, neither did Paulson in the end. Cuz what yeah. he did was he abandoned the 750 billion dollar program. He did not use it except what he did is he made a bunch of loans to banks that didn't need the loans. Maybe a few that needed it, but he mostly forced 750 billion dollars off into the capital of banks you know what you know what you, you know what that happens when you do that when you add banks 750 billion dollars of capital they loan multiples of that out
0: but they didn't Lo- loan growth was extremely low in 2009 10 11 well, I'm
1: not worried about 2009 I'm worried about the next 10 years and 15 years after that okay that, they, they, they made a horrible decision to, to force the banks to take that those loans, and I can tell you that one banker, Dick Kavasovic of Wells Fargo, when they when the Treasury told him that Wells Fargo was going to have to accept a twenty five billion dollar capital infusion from TARP, Kavasovic in a meeting with all you know a number of large banks and stuff, um, he was told by Paulson, "See that woman over there?" And God says, "Yeah." She runs the FDIC, and she's going to be in your bank on Monday if you don't take this Monday, this money, and you're going to regret your decision not to take the money. I guarantee you. So Kavasovic took the money, and that's happened with a lot of banks. And and we put so much money out there, interest rates go to zero, and nothing's normal anymore. Nothing's normal anymore. How can you how can you have a regulated banking system, one that's regulated by regulators and one that's regulated by the markets, when the banks don't get interest, they don't they're not they don't and borrowers are not charged interest. I mean, it doesn't work. Which is why the sun rose. I mean, you that's know, every, day the, every day the sun rose, today. the
0: the sun fell, the moon, the moon rose. I mean. It's what? weird. It's, it's ahistorical for sure, but you know it, the the it's, ahistorical. I said, but you know, a four percent deposit rate and six percent on loans. That's the same net interest margin as zero and two. It right? wasn't
1: even that, and but that was that was way lower than the market had been for a long time. But it, it and, and if it were four and six, okay, that's uh, maybe for a short period of time. But you can't have a market oriented banking system if you don't have Market markets. You don't have markets. You don't have rates, and that's what we did. We took interest rates globally to zero and kept them there for ten years, and then we wonder why we have
0: problems. And ironically, bank lending was very low from you know two thousand nine to twenty nineteen. Bank lending was low and much much lower than when you were at the FDIC or when rates were at fifteen percent. They were lower. Bank, bank uh, yeah interest rates were lower from 2009 to 2019 but banks lent a lot less money Bank like lo- loan growth.
1: Oh, well in 2008, 2009 banks were scared
0: yeah but but of the decade after for sure I mean now it's coming back big time From 2010 to 2020, we
1: did not have markets that were functioning properly because interest rates were near zero globally. How can how can you have a, a banking system that's not market based? How are you going to decide who gets the money?
0: Uh, and yeah, what project,
1: and what projects can be supported? I mean, it's to me,
0: it's, I don't understand why somebody didn't ask this question long ago. But are you surpri- are you surprised, Bill, that this is the system function? I mean, it wasn't that different. No, it was a lot different. Okay, tell it's me a lot different.
1: I can't comprehend how somebody decided that this was a good idea. I know what we'll do. We'll make everything right in the banking system. We're going to get rid of interest rates, period. Uh, How are you going to decide who gets the money? How are you going to decide what, (laughs) what projects you're going to finance, whether they're good or bad?
0: Well, you're still it's still a spread. Of, it's it, instead of the spread over the risk-free rate of five, it's the spread over the risk rate of zero point two. What? Instead of the you know uh, everything being priced, I mean every, everything priced off a spread off of the risk-free rate, and if that risk-free rate is five, you know five point two. Now it's zero point two.
1: And and you think zero point two is going to have a material effect on decisions?
0: I don't, I don't, know. If I don't wanna, know. If I want to
1: if I want to buy a house, yeah, and I have to pay. 7% mortgage. That that will go into my calculation of what I can afford. I know what my salary is, I know what my expenses are, blah blah blah. What the taxes are, the maintenance and all that, and I know what I can afford. If the cost of that mortgage is .25.
0: Well, it's it, but it's 3%. It's yeah. Well,
1: it, I I can tell you the house I'm living in right now. I got the rate down to two I think it was 2.5%. 2.5, yeah i i can afford a much bigger house at 2.5 percent
0: yeah
1: uh, than i can when the rate's seven percent we have a this a market based system in this country and probably most com- com- countries although us probably more than most we we depend on markets to help us make to make to help us allocate resources
0: yeah but i, I would say that you know s- since pretty much you know, 1913 1914. Or really, you know, whatever. Uh, Nineteen twenty-nine. The m- short-term interest rates have been set by the by the Federal Reserve, not a, a market. Set. And you know, Paul Volcker raising interest rates to twenty percent is just because he wants to constrain the economy because the economy is running so hot and inflation is so high. That is just as artificial as interest rates at zero because the economy is so weak that it needs a boost.
1: And and what Paul Volcker did in taking interest rates from say eight percent to twenty-one percent was an extraordinary measure that you would not normally want to see, and you wouldn't want to see it for very long. Because what he was trying to do is kill inflation. And the only way to do that was to to limit demand. And you limit demand by raising prices, okay? And so I agree that if Paul Booker had kept interest rates at 21% for 10 years, there wouldn't be much left of the country.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. We certainly wouldn't have any shiny new buildings. No. And, and so that, and and I, that would be a bad thing. And Paul Boker knew full well that that would be a bad thing, but he also knew that, you know, we were in extremists. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we, we needed to really stern, you know, tough shot of penicillin or whatever to get this economy well and get it down to, Normal, because you can't. It's it. You know, it's, it's like you're running in a marathon for for forty miles. <laughs> you you can't do that. Your body can't handle it. And so Paul Walker knew that. But you, you you also can't go home, and lie in bed for forty years. I mean, your your body needs some exercise. You need to have it functioning. And that's and that's I, I, that's a terrible analogy I'm making, but but it, but but it, you know it, it it doesn't make any sense to 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 have an economy with 21 percent interest rates for an in, in intermittent period of time, and, it, and it, just as it doesn't make any sense to have rates anywhere near zero for a significant length of time, both of them are radical things. And maybe, maybe, maybe the folks who handled the 2008 period. um, And, you know, I think Bernanke was chairman of the Fed and followed by Yellen and so forth. But maybe the people who handled that period had really good thinking when they said, we need to get interest rates down to close to close to you know two percent, one you know three percent, four percent, somewhere really low to get this economy back in in the right place. Get it strong enough that it can it can survive and grow. They might they might have been right on that. I don't know. They're you know that's you knew job. I don't know. And and but but and maybe Paul Volcker was right that he had to get interest rates up to twenty one percent to to get the economy calm down so that we can function normally and I I believe he did do the right thing I believe and I believe he was a very smart man and knew what he was doing um, so I but but some people don't some people thought he shouldn't have done it I think you might think he shouldn't have done it but uh, yeah but that's you know that's your that's your right and my right to say I think he did the right thing and I and I don't know but I don't know how anybody could argue. That Paul Volcker should have gone to twenty one percent, as long as he cared to. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I, I'd agree with you that I, I, I honestly don't have a strong view on whether 20 percent was uh, necessary. I, I really don't. I was more defending why interest rates had to be so low. You know, in two thousand eight, two
1: thousand nine. I'm, so, I'm sort of agreeing with you that that I'm, I'm not going to second guess those who thought. I can't, I can't second guess Paul Volcker on twenty one percent. Okay.
0: Yeah. No, no. Nor do I and, want to. I, yeah. And, and, and I can't,
1: I can't second guess Bernanke whoever was in power at the time, on three percent. Yeah. Whatever. I, 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 that's fine. I mean, i I'm, I'm, I. These people are doing a very difficult job, and they got to make some tough calls. And it's not all pure science. You got you got some judgment you got to use. Definitely and, not
0: pure science, and the the rules and relationships change all the time. And probably ten percent of things that are relevant you have control over, and the ninety percent you don't have control over. And I would you know, I just I just looked it up. So like in twenty thirteen, uh, c- inflation was at one percent, and the unemployment rate was at seven point six percent, close to to eight percent. So you know if you're a believer in the dual mandate, which the Federal Reserve is of. Low unemployment and two uh, percent inflation—you're you're not there yet, right?
1: The point I'm trying to make is that I I can't second guess Paul Volcker at twenty-one percent for a year or two, whatever it was. Uh, it seemed reasonable to me at the time, and and uh, was he too high? Maybe a little bit. Uh, could he have been d- done a little better if he'd been a little lower? Maybe. And and I'm not going to second guess the Fed at
0: yeah. Three
1: oh, percent, let's say three percent in nineteen in two thousand thirteen. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe that. Maybe even two percent. I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 I'm not that smart. And, and.
0: Uh, I'm definitely not that smart. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I think there. You know, uh, some papers point out that, that they're diminishing returns to zero. And I mean, the track record of negative rates is quite poor. I mean, you have negative rates in Europe, and they don't have a booming economy. So, uh, yeah, that that extra stimulus from. Two percent to zero, or you're even negative fifty basis points, it's it's you know, maybe the juice isn't worth the squeeze. I, I totally agree. I, with that. I wouldn't
1: I wouldn't have complained about any complained about any of that if they had done it for a reasonable period of time. And what's a reasonable period of time? I don't know, a year, two years. Just like whatever Volker had to decide about 21%. Uh, but but they they came up with a theory that money could be at near zero for a decade, and not have any strange effects, not any bad effects, and I, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% confident that was a bad plan.
0: Yeah, I think you could be right. I mean, we, we, we haven't even talked about quantitative easing, um, but we'll, we'll leave it there. Bill, thank you so much uh, for for being so generous with your your insights and time. Uh, we, we, uh, you know, we we run long, so I, I appreciate it. Um, where can people, if they want to you know, learn more about, about your, your work and uh, your, your firm, where, where can they go?
1: Well, the firm, uh, and by the way, uh, I I hope you don't want to come and visit me <laughs> with a gun and all that sort of stuff. No, 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 no.
0: <laughs> no, I'm just joking, but yeah,
1: it's a crazy well, world. Like, like the they day. did with Volcker with the
0: window or something?
1: <laughs> well, he he a guy walks into the Fed boardroom with with a – Overcoat, and he has a shotgun inside his overcoat. Wow, I didn't know that. He's, he's sitting. He's he's right outside the for, the, the board room, and and we and the FJC had some of its offices bombed in the Midwest because of the farmers are all concerned about things, and and so and there there are some crazy people in this world, uh, and and uh, I'm, I'm not. Too concerned about it. I've, I've had, a, had a had a good life and basically have been uh, very very uh, privileged to to lead this life and be able to be in the public arena. But let me let me just say, I I really appreciate your this conversation. Uh, you don't get a chance very often to have an a, an extended conversation. Um, you you know when you give an interview on TV, it's if your answer is longer than thirty seconds, you, you the, the questioner runs out of patience pretty quickly. And so, to be able to have this back and forth, I, I, I tell you that I really enjoy this because you don't get a chance to have extended conversations like this when you do an interview. And 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 not everybody is as, as well informed as you are. It's been fun oh. to have some banter.
0: Well, thank you. I. Uh... I so, so appreciate that, and I enjoy the chance to banter with someone who literally ran the FDIC <laughs> during you know the, well, the early part of the savings and loan crisis. And yeah, I I'd, I mean, you're, you're thinking just about debt going back to the sovereign level. I you're focusing much more on the government than on the banking, which which I expected. Um, but I have to say, yeah, in 2020 and 2021, and uh, there was so much money printing that I think you're. Your theories are dead accurate to describe what occurred. Where, you know, if it's if the government's not spending that much money and the Fed's doing QE, okay, that's one thing. They're just, you know, printing bank reserves and that's it. But when the government is borrowing money from the Fed, who's trillions of dollars, and then they're just giving it to people and they're giving it to companies and they're giving it to everyone, I mean, that is going to cause inflation. So I'm with you. I'm, I, I you know, I'm not one of those people. I just want to clarify who says, oh, the reason inflation was at 9% is because of supply chain. Obviously that played a role in the same way oil, you know, the reason the price of gas went from a buck to five bucks is because of OPEC in 1974. But second, there's a secular driver of inflation, which is money printing. So I just want to be, be on the, be in the, you know, I, I view myself as a moderate. I'm not a, you know, I'm not someone mm-hmm. who's defending negative I, rates. I, 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 I,
1: I understand that. And I, I, I I, I know that you – but first of all, you have, you, you're you trying to be provocative to, to some extent, and, and that, that's what makes interviews interesting is when they get provocative. But uh, I, I know that you are not a, a crazy, and if I thought you were, I, I'm not sure how long this interview would have lasted. <laughs> <laughs> not very long.
0: Well, uh, thank, you, thank you so much, Bill, and thank you everyone for watching. Thank you. Take care.